I was in, originally intending to teach First Thessalonians 2, <laughs> 1 through 12, on the marks of faithful ministry. I've been impressed with Paul. And before I start giving you that sermon, I better switch gears really quickly. But as I was just driving along this week and listening to the radio and talk radio and, and listening to all that's going on, Congress gathering together, even as was reflected in our prayer time, the blame shifting, you know, politics, that's the problem. It's the, the laws that we've made. It's the consumers. It's, it's the banking industry. Talk, 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 talk. The politics, <laughs> it's this time of the year where we hear slander underneath the guise of analyzing someone, slandering character. And it's easy for us as, as believers to get caught up into that and to use little labels like we're just analyzing things here and allow gossip and slander to slide. And I thought this would be a great passage for me. James 4 is also very encouraging to me as well because as we're looking over a cliff, so to speak, over the next coming weeks as to where the United States will go with its economy, where do we rest? Where's our hope? And James 4 answers all of that. And it was just something that I'm clinging to in light of God's sovereignty that we're just a vapor. We're here. And we're gone, but the Lord is sovereign over today and over tomorrow. And it impressed me enough that I switched gears. And so you have an outline that, Lord willing, will reflect our movement through the text today. As we begin, I would like to give you, get you up to speed on the book of James. If you would look at James chapter 1, verse 18, James is writing to those who profess to be believers. He's calling them brethren In James 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. He says in verse 18, of which we're looking at even now, James 1, 18, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So the word of truth brings life, birth, regeneration is the theological term for this. The sovereign grace of God. In chapter 1, verse 25, He calls believers who've been brought forth to then abide in the word, to to be not a hearer only, but a a doer of the word. And that's done because of the power of the gospel. Look at James 1.25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, it's not talking about the Mosaic law here, the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the law that frees us from looking at the word but not doing anything, (laughs) Not, not affecting any changes, frees us from the enslavement of sin. That, that law, and he abides by it, clinging to it, drawing life from it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. You should think of Psalm 1. James is well acquainted with Proverbs and the Psalms. He bleeds wisdom. He's blessed because of the word of God. In James chapter 2, verse 12, He calls us to live in light of the law of liberty, the the gospel. And I I can make the claim that it is the gospel because this passage says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the law of liberty. Mercy, the grace of God, extended in the gospel. He narrows it down, though, and helps us understand justification. In James chapter 2, verse 23, he looks back to Abraham. And the scripture was fulfilled, James 2, 23, which says, 
It was reckoned to him as righteousness, credited righteousness, as he was called the friend of God. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, believed, trusted, depended, or in Old Testament terminology, waited, relied, found his refuge in God. And God credited God's righteousness to his account. And notice he was called a friend of God. That's very important as we'll see in James 4. Because those who set their mind on the world are at enmity with God. He says they're not a friend of God, but those who have received the righteousness of God through faith, they're friends of God. So he begins to build upon this and really analyzes the tree. I only know a tree from its fruit. I can't look at, personally, I can't look at the genetics, some of you can, of a tree. Analyze it and say, well, it's an apple tree. Well, how do you know? Well, my technology and scientific equipment here tells me it's the genetics of an apple tree. I, I personally have to look at the external fruit of the tree, its characteristics from the outside. And James does the same. He says in James 2 that saving faith, true genuine faith that is abiding in Christ, clinging to Christ, that has been credited the righteousness of Christ, therefore my position has changed from one of judgment and condemnation to one of liberty and life and freedom in Jesus Christ. Not freedom to sin, but freedom to love Him and to worship Him. He says that overflows into the fruit of righteousness. bears fruit in the life. That's why Abraham, when he took up Isaac, offered Isaac his son, expressing the fruit of saving faith, genuine faith. He was connected to Christ. And so in this context, James then turns around and says, well, let me give you some examples in James 3.13 and following of, of those who do not demonstrate gentleness of wisdom And they don't show by their good behavior. And rather, in verse 14, they have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in the heart. In verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. James, in chapter 3, takes us to the outside of a house. Just bear along with the imagery for just a moment. We look at the outside of the house in James 3. The tongue is it's spewing forth bitterness and selfish ambition, slander, gossip. And he takes note that the wood is rotting. The shingles are falling off. The roof is hanging perilously. The frame is teetering. But he doesn't think we get the picture. And so he, he invites us into the home. There's a reason this house is falling apart. And we smell the odor of rottenness and putrefaction. And we notice there are gaping holes in the floor, splintered floors beginning to fall apart. We're seen into the basement, but we still don't understand the gravity of it. And so he takes us deeper. He invites us to come down the rickety old stairs into the cellar, into the basement. He leads us down there. He invites us to look at the source. And there we smell it. Someone died. That's why the house is falling apart. I had a Saturn, 93 Saturn. I was driving along with my cup of milk, accidentally spilled it. And I'll tell you, for I know, years, <laughs> we kept trying to clean that up. That sour milk just stunk. And when it got hot or really wet, vapors just came up. I remember picking, I think even Pat Abendroth up, and uh, going, what is this smell? <laughs> Trust me, we've tried. We got this lemon little Christmas tree up. I mean, we've sprayed. We've done everything we can. 
clean the carpets, exchange the carpets. What, what, what else can we do? Finally, you just you get rid of it. And we, we, we bore with it as long as we could. Well, James says we've got to deal with the source. Got to deal with the putrefaction inside. But he does it by giving us weapons of grace. Four of them. Four divine weapons of grace. So that we can take them and take, go to war upon our, our hearts. To deal with our hearts. But before he does that, he wants to look at the basement. He wants to look at the basement of our hearts. Now we can say based on the tenor of scripture that if my life reflects this as the pattern of my life, there's a problem. And he invites us then to run to the cross. To run to grace. Obviously I need to be, I need to experience the law of liberty. I need to be freed from this enslavement to sin. But for believers, as he still seems to be moving between brothers in verse 11, don't speak against one another, brethren. There seems to be open to, hey, there are believers who will fall into this, but here's the way out. Remember God's grace. Remember God's sovereignty. But before we look at those four divine weapons, we need to, first of all, consider the source. The source of quarrels. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, so 1 through 4, we're gonna, we have to look at the basement. <laughs> we're going to have to smell the smells. Put on the mask. Do what you can to survive. Here it is. 4, 1 through 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He just stops there. The, the, what's the basement? Where's the basement? Where's the cellar? Where's it coming from? This destructiveness. The word quarrels, we get our English word polemic from. From this Greek word, it, it's used of a controversy. Uh, it's often used in theological circles in which we defend the faith against heresy. Polemology is the word, if you look at it in the dictionary, for the studying the art of war. Polemics. This is the word for quarrels. It is a large-scale war drawn out on the battlefield. It's not an isolated duel between two individuals. It is a full-scale battle with the military units working cohesively together against an enemy. It is a full-scale assault. That's the depiction. What is the source of this full-scale war, quarrels, and conflicts? That's the individual. He has given us a view, an aerial view, and then he's moved into a close-up view. Conflicts. Hand-to-hand combat, if you will. Hand-to-hand combat. The battle tactics, if you look back at James 3, 15, the battle tactic is the wisdom, verse 15, that is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. It is rather than submitting to God as he's going to call us to do, to submit our minds to his word in repentance, rather it is to raise up my own standard of wisdom and authority. And he says, it's not heavenly. It's earthly. It's not spiritual. It's not biblical. Oh, in fact, it's demonic. He gives us three synonyms. That's the tactic. The strategy, the goal of this all-out war is found in verse 16 of chapter 3, 316. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. There it is. The whole point is selfish ambition. The whole point is my battle strategy, my goal is the supremacy of self. To raise up self. To take the life of another as he's going to connect in a minute so that I can be supreme and stand over the dead, if you will. The victor. 
the king of the hill in the real world, the world of wars, battles, selfish ambition. Notice as he begins to plummet into the dark corners of the cellar, back in chapter 4, verse 1, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. This is not members or individuals within the body of Christ. We see that by looking at James 3 where he talks about the tongue and he deals with it on an individual basis. He is talking about the members that are inside of me, Chris Peterson, inside my heart. He identifies these members as pleasures. Is not the source your pleasures, Chris Peterson, that wage war in your members, inside of you, inside of your heart. There are competing soldiers... (laughs) called desires, passions, pleasures that are worldly, demonic, earthly, fleshly, as we see in James 3, that compete for supremacy within me, within me. There is a a war going on, a, a, a battle going on within the heart of you and I. That's where the conflict is coming from. It is an all-out war. The word to wage war is is identifying continual activity. It is a word that's used of soldiers that are fighting. All out. The heart, as an industry, a factory, on the assembly line that is rushing out planes and tanks and ships and artillery, it's an all out war. And we see that conflict within. No wonder in James 4, verse 8, he he says, you double-minded. Why are we double-minded? We're unstable because we got these pleasures that are fighting for supremacy within. And we see that. I want one thing, and then there's a battle within. Is that really the best for me? And I get that, and I want something else. And this is constant play out of desires competing for one another. We see that with our children. They're a classic illustration I often, I don't know if you do this, but use my children as a little lab of my own heart. And I remember picking up a toy, you know, and ah, look at this. And my child would waddle over for it, diapers. Daddy. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if I can grab something else and play with that, see what the child does. Puts down, dissatisfied, goes over there, wants the next toy. You start realizing, I can grab a piece of paper and waddle up and do a ball and start playing with it and making it a big deal. And, and the heart wants that too. It's the desires of the heart that are never satisfied. It's an all-out war. And you see, when you take two individuals then and you put them toe-to-toe on the battle line, you have an all-out World War III. Because within me are these competing desires and within that other person are competing desires. And you put the two together and there are all these desires fighting for supremacy. Hence, he says, this is the source of quarrels and conflicts. It is within me. The enemy is within. But our world wants to analyze and look at journals. Why Columbine? Why the Virginia Tech massacre? Why Westroads? Is there something wrong mentally? Is there something in their environment? They express something in the journal. Analyzing, analyzing, instead of just dealing with the heart. It is an outflow of our hearts. Like Nazi Germany, 
Hitler as he paraded through and took country after country after country. And other countries just stood back thinking, well, it's going to be done here. And others are warning and saying, no, if we don't stop it, this machine will continue to go forward and take control. The heart is depicted as the same. Now, he gets into some tough language here. And he begins to describe this selfishness. He gives us the character of it. First of all, in relationship to others and then in relationship to God. In relationship to others, we find in verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. He gives us the end game, that the seed of lust, the end game is murder. It's like Haman who sought to hang Mordecai, but he wasn't satisfied with just Mordecai. Mordecai was getting in the way, so let's hang him. Oh, but how about his family? Uh, How about his nation? See how it works? That's the heart. The heart of lust, the end game, he says, is you murder, you kill. I don't think he's talking to believers that they actually are running around killing each other. He's diagnosing the heart here so that we might run to the weapons of grace to deal with our hearts, that we might stand out in the midst of a culture that is encumbered by these pleasures that wage war and to stand out and present the hope and light of the law of liberty, the gospel that frees us from the heart. In relationship to others, he says in verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It comes back to the heart. After moving from our relationship to others, he then moves to our relationship to God, which obviously demonstrates why we are on the attack of others. Why, when others infringe upon us, we want to cut them down? Why, when others are promoted, we want to bring them down so that we can be exalted? Why, when our children are acting in a certain way that is reflective of us, we want to correct that so that we can be presented as parents who are in control? That's all because of our standing before God. And he tells us, the problem is is our relationship to God, verse 2. You do not have at the end there because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Huge language. Huge language. First of all, we, ask, we do not ask, therefore we don't receive. He deals with one heart that is so bent on self that we're n- not beseeching God for his grace. We don't submit to him. We're not running to him in prayer. We're not running to his word. We don't ask. We don't look to him as, as the sovereign giver, the sovereign ruler. We look to ourselves. That's the problem. But then he deals with another uh, a group of people that maybe they think they're a little more pious than this other group. They ask, but they don't receive because they ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So they ask God. These, these are terms of prayer, of requests, making requests. The first group doesn't even ask. At least they're acknowledging their self-dependence. The second group is asking, but desiring to use God's good gifts for self. To take the sovereign goodness of God and to distort it and to use it as a weapon of the heart. And it's fitting then, he uses the word in verse 3 of spending, to squander. It's used of the unmanned 
who left his father, squandered all of his goods and went to eat with the pigs. Luke 15 and 16. We use God's good gifts for fighting, warring, and killing. We squander it. He says it's a hostile position then. We pray harmfully. The word for this prayer describes corruption, harm, and injury. It's destructive. He then says it leads to, verse 4, hostility to God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he says, makes himself an enemy of God. And that's a strong statement. Because in James chapter 2, 23, we saw that Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So we stand opposed to his righteous character. We endeavor to bend God and to use God for our selfish purposes. We stand then against how often, brothers and sisters, that I do that? Sliding into the passions of my own sinful heart, pursuing my own selfish ambition. He says that's to stand against God. He uses these terms of battle, war, fight, killing, hostility, and an enemy. And then he calls us believers when we plunge into the basement of our hearts and begin to live there. He calls us adulteresses. And for those, no doubt, who their life is in the cellar, that is their life. They're indeed, positionally, they are adulteresses. They claim the name of God, and yet they stand opposed to God. Boy, that word sets us right up for the next few verses. Adulteresses. It reminds me of Ezekiel 16 in which God says that he took Israel and he found Israel. It's a powerful passage. He takes Israel, he finds Israel as this tiny babe in blood, just been birthed. The the navel cord is still there. And he has compassion on this babe and he takes this babe in her her blood and, and cleans her and clothes her in his white garments and he gives her jewels and her fame goes out before the world. But then Israel succumbs to the heart and the desires of the flesh. And Ezekiel 16 describes Israel as beginning to sell God's good gifts, to have harlotous relationships with the nations, to worship their gods, to worship their idols, to serve them. And when that's not enough, she begins to sell herself. But God, after condemning Israel, then says, I'm going to establish a covenant with you, and I'm going to allow you to remember your ways to repent at the end of chapter 16. Is James thinking of that passage or is he thinking of Hosea 11? I don't know. It's just dripping with this of harlotry and adultery. Our affections should be towards God and God alone. So we should be crying out, I hope you are as I am, Lord, give me the divine weapons for taking, going to war on my heart. And he does that. He gives us four of them. Let's run out of the basement. <laughs> Let's run up the stairs outside Run to the armory room. 
grab the weapons. And he takes us to verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. This is one of those passages that is tough grammatically in the Greek. And if I pulled each of your translations, we would all have a little bit different of a translation. And in fact, you may find in your margins a note or down at the bottom of the NIV, a, a textual note. Basically, there are four of them. Number one, the human spirit is the object of the main verb. And it would go something like this. God, he, yearns enviously for the spirit which he caused to dwell in us. The spirit which he caused to dwell in us. I believe that's the NIV translation. I, I have a problem with that one because um, the us, he's talking about brethren. And that would be equating God with his spirit of desire. Theologically, I have a problem with that. God is not the, the one who makes that kind of spirit to dwell within me. And then secondly, he's moving into God's grace, what God does. Moving into hope. The second view is the divine spirit. The Holy Spirit is the object of the verb. It would go something like this. He, God, yearns enviously for the spirit, the Holy Spirit, which he caused to dwell in us. That's permissible. I think that works. He, God, yearns enviously, desirously for the spirit which he caused to dwell in us. The third one is the human spirit is the subject of the main verb. It goes something like this. The spirit which he has made to dwell within us yearns earnestly. The spirit which he has made to dwell within us yearns earnestly. And then fourth, and this is the one I favor here. Fourth, the divine spirit is the subject of the verb. The spirit which he made to dwell in us yearns earnestly. The spirit which he made to dwell in us yearns earnestly. Now, we can get lost in this grammar and go, well, which one is it? I can give you some theological reasons. I mean, here we have adulteresses, and now he's going to move into the affections of the Spirit of God. I don't think it's God causing a spirit of envy. That doesn't make any sense theologically, nor does it make sense with this text. The other three options, aside from God putting a spirit of envy within us, I think are all within the bounds. The whole point is this. God's desires. God's desires. Whether God's desires for the Spirit which He has put within us, or it's the Spirit's desire for us, which God has put within us, the whole point is, you want to deal with the desires of the heart, then crush those desires with God's desires. That's the point. Crush them with God's desires. The word longing, or earnestly longing, is used often of Paul, who longs for believers, expresses this intense desire for believers. As Piper says in his book, Future Grace, he says, We must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the flicker of lust pleasures in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. God's desires. What are God's desires? Well, he jealously desires our soul. He purchased us with his precious blood. Jesus in John 14 through 17 says that he delights in the Father's glory and he sends the Holy Spirit to point us to the Father's glory. So his desire is for the Father's glory. And the Spirit is all about pointing us to the Father's glory. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the Spirit. And that's in the context of the desire, God's desire, that we be sanctified. 
entirely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Spirit of God. It's in the context of putting off bitterness, wrath, anger. That's Ephesians 4.30. And then Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. First weapon, first weapon for destroying the selfishness of the heart, it's God's jealousy. God's jealousy, God's desire. Reminds me of Phinehas, who was the priest in Numbers 25. He's gathered with the leaders of Israel. There's an immoral man and woman that bring their immorality right into the camp. God has already brought judgment on them because the people of Israel have run over to harlotry with other nations. And Phinehas is consumed with with the glory of God. He takes his spear right there in the midst of all the people and thrusts the two through. And God says this, he was jealous with my jealousy. He had my desires. He had my passion for my glory, God says. The first weapon. Desires must be replaced with divine desires, God's desires. Well, how do I do that? Well, he takes us to the second weapon. The weapon of God's grace. How does grace rule the heart God's desires, God's grace. Verse 6, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. I love how he begins right out of the jealousy of God and his desires. He says, God gives a greater grace. God gives a greater grace. God gives his power and his sufficiency and his presence to wage war on the enemy within. And he's going to bring us to, in verse 11, it is the law of liberty, it's through the gospel. His grace exceeds the promises of the lustful heart. His grace conquers. His grace comes in as a steed, as a victor on a white horse, amidst the thray of the army, and wages war, conquers, and brings the heart into submission to Almighty God. So he says, God gives a greater grace, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How would you like to stand opposed to all God, all that God is? It's one thing to be opposed to another and have these skirmishes and this conflict battling within and within the other person, and we draw the line and we go to war. But to be opposed by God, we need His grace because He gives grace to the humble. The flesh pursues pride. God pursues our humility because it is in the house of humility that grace thrives. That grace here procures humility. He gives a greater grace. Say, what do you mean grace procures, grabs humility, initiates humility? Well, if you look at verse 10, humble yourselves. How? How do I humble myself? Be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. No. Humble yourselves, where? In the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. His grace. 
He draws you into his presence through the word of God, the law of liberty, the gospel, so that you might see the grandeur and glory of God. And as you see him displayed before your eyes, that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, the heart breaks, it's contrite and broken. There is humility and therein is grace. God gives a greater grace. And it is in his presence, Isaiah 6, as the prophet stands before God and he notices the thresholds, his feet. He's on the ground. His face is on the ground. He sees them shaking because he's in the presence of Almighty God and he says, woe is me. Literally, I'm being ripped apart in the presence of God. He was experiencing God's grace. It humbled him. Said so he would be a fit instrument. Ten military commands are given. Therefore, connects these ten commands to God's grace. Therefore, submit to God. Order yourself underneath him. Take your position in rank and file. Place yourself under God's word. Deny and acknowledge and confess. So deny self-wisdom, acknowledge and confess that that self-wisdom is natural, fleshly, demonic. And submit to his word by his grace. How do I resist the devil? Well, by submitting to God's word. (laughs) You resist the devil, he will flee from you. The idea is that as I submit to God and I arrange myself underneath Him by His grace, in His presence, I'm sheltered by Almighty God, protected. Satan doesn't want to stand in the presence of God, not with the glory of God proclaimed. Draw near to God. It's fellowship with God in His presence. Cleanse your hands. It's used of the priest who would daily offer sacrifices and Daily, he would cleanse his hands and his feet because as he offered sacrifices, the blood would spill upon his white garments. Daily, he would cleanse. The concept of sanctification, of cleansing from the word of God. Purify your hearts in the context of double-mindedness. The word of God, the grace of God, the presence of God deals with our hearts. Incredible picture. James draws analogies from the Old Testament. He's full of them. We see wisdom, law of liberty, these statements that reflect Old Testament terminology. And it seems here that he's thinking of the high priesthood. Once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies. So you have the temple, outer court, holy place, and the Holy of Holies where the Word of God stood in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Word of God. And there God's presence would be manifested, the Shekinah glory. And once a year they would enter in to make a blood sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people. It was a day of judgment or life. They had seen God judge sin. (laughs) So whether God would accept the sacrifice or not, they would immediately know. The priest would either be dead or come out alive. And if he was dead, that's a problem. Because what about us? The priest would first enter the outer court where he would stop at the brazen laver for cleansing. It's a bowl that they would cleanse themselves in. On this day, they would full body cleansing. It's a day of atonement. After washing in the laver, the priest would then stop at the altar, the brazen altar, and he would offer a sacrifice for cleansing for himself and for his people. And then he would wash himself and he would put on a linen white garment and he would prepare to step past the third veil 
separating the holy place from the holy of holies once a year. Big deal. It was a curtain supported by five pillars overlaid with gold. It was said to be, by the Talmud, 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and about four inches thick. 300 priests were required to hang the veil. And Leviticus 16 says this, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. Serious. I would not want to be in that man's shoes. Thank the Lord for Jesus Christ, our high priest. The priest enters with hot coals in one hand and incense in the other, so that when it's offered, the incense would burn and rise to the air, sweet-smelling incense. The hot coals were sprinkled with incense as a fragrant aroma. The blood of a bullock was sprinkled upward one time and downward seven times, and he counted to make sure it was right. Finally, the priest took a he-goat, offered its blood in the Holy of Holies, and everyone waited. When would he step out of the outer court? to step out with his hands raised and praise to God. And the people would admit and praise and worship. The offering had been accepted. These are the pictures that James is painting for us. Running to Christ, running to our high priest. Maybe you are living in the cellar and this is where you live. You need to run to Christ for salvation. Maybe you've been tenting in the basement. And you need to pick up that tent, run to the cross, run to His grace. This is for us. Submit to God. Deal with the heart before God. Run to the cross. Images of repentance. Be miserable, mourn, weep, mourn instead of laughing, be despondent instead of joy. He's saying repent. Instead of squandering his, God's goodness, Repent, mourn, and run to Him. He will exalt. He will raise up in His presence. There's two more that we're going to refer to very quickly. The third one is God's law of liberty. And I've referred to it often enough that I don't need to build much for this. Look at verse 11. Don't speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That seems real simple. In fact, I wanted to write the third one. God is the judge. I'm not the judge. My heart expresses itself. I start judging other people's motives. So deal with the heart by running to God as the judge until I realized and found out by studying this text that this word law has no article, which means it's not the Mosaic law. It's talking about the law that James has been talking about, the law of liberty. That's why he says, he uses the term here in verse 11, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. It should connect back to James 1, a doer, not just a hearer. And then that's where the shaking begins. Because you see, when I run to the cellar of my heart and I stand in enmity against God, I am opposed to the gospel. It's one thing to think about the law and God is judge. The cross. The cross displays the justice of God. There, the Son, the Lamb of God, was judged in the place of sinners. There he took on the undiluted wrath of God. Showing, yes, his love, but showing 
justice and holiness and righteous wrath against sin. And when I stand up against God or stand up opposed to others and I begin to listen to the pleasures of the heart, I am opposed to the law of liberty. I'm opposed to the gospel. That's why he says he is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, brothers and sisters, yes, my heart does this. I begin to deal with motives, and I find my heart running there. I'm pleading to God, God, would you grab a hold of my heart? My heart is just running away. Someone looked at me wrong. I want to come up with a motive for it. What is up with me? Hate that. Hate my heart. But Lord God, by your grace, I run to the gospel, the law of liberty. And therein is freedom in the cross. Saving us, yes, from the penalty of sin, but also sanctifying, cleansing, purifying my heart. The last weapon. We saw the law of liberty. We also see sovereign, God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will. There's a tendency for us, when we listen to our heart, to be jealous with our own desires instead of depending on God's grace, to depend upon our own strength and to become our own gospel, our own judge, our own savior. And fourthly, to be our own sovereign Lord. I begin to determine my plans and shape everything around them rather than around God's sovereignty. You want to deal with the heart? Run to the word of God and review his sovereignty. And that's what James does. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Got all these plans. Verse 14, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills. God is sovereign. Trips like India, when I was getting ready to go to India, I um, raised up life insurance. (laughs) Of course, I was wondering if they would give it to me, considering I was going to India, but they found out the part of the country I was going to was all right. It wasn't the north. But all of a sudden, I become aware of it. Why then? Why, when a dear friend is going on the surgery table, why then are we all of a sudden concerned about tomorrow? You see, we live every day on a thread. We are a vapor here and gone. The antidote to that heart, the heart of self-sovereignty, the heart that everything's okay, is to remember God's sovereign will. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, the reason I tied all of these together, we tend to read one through four, five, and we just stop there. And we tell each other about our hearts. But we never deal with the solution. We never run to the weapons of grace. You say, well, why do you treat it all together? Because he wraps it all together. Verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Pulls it all together. This is a unit. It's meant to deal with our hearts. If we just deal with one through five, we're just walking around the cellar going, oh, this is horrible. I wish I could get a new place to live. You run to the text and God invites you to step into his throne room. So that we might deal with our hearts and be a light and a testimony in a dark world. Recently, I was driving with a a friend. And we're driving along and I'm drinking a Coke or whatever. I'm drinking Diet Mountain Dew. And I'm kind of in the far right lane and there's some cones. It was up there on Dodge in the overpass. 
and I'm in the far side of the lane, and there's a left lane on my left side and a right lane on the right side. And um, all of a sudden, the, the shotgun, person with the shotgun, grabs the steering wheel and turns it to the left because I was in the far right. Now, this person thought that a semi-truck was passing me on the right. And since I was over on the right, that I would scrape the semi-truck. So I grabbed the steering wheel, and I was shocked. I mean, I've got my drink, I'm balancing all this, and what can I do? I mean, it's out of my hands. And all of a sudden, the semi-truck goes right by on the left side, running right into the semi-truck. Of course, didn't hit. God was gracious. So I'm here. But the person said, well, I, I was... I saw a reflection of it in the window and thought it was on the reverse side. And so I, I thought I was pulling the vehicle out of the way of the truck. And I thought, what, what a depiction of our hearts. We don't have the law of liberty, the gospel. We have a total skewed picture of life. And when we think we're trying to help, we're destroying. We're running it into the semi-truck. And we see the United States struggling with some real issues because of this. And we're part of that. Can we stand out and be a light? Absolutely. God's desires, God's grace, the law of liberty, the gospel. Run to it. And then lastly, God's sovereignty. Cling to it. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, you are in charge of the universe. All the millions of galaxies, the billions of galaxies that are above and around us, you order and control by the word of your power. And we can get flustered when we look at an economy that is struggling as we see the global impact of that. And we begin to wonder about tomorrow. Our plans are checked, checkmated, Lord. Remind us that you are in charge. And when our hearts quiver, may we run to the law of liberty, which works in our hearts, promoting the cross, promoting your righteousness that you've credited through faith, so that we might not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. We might live in light of your sovereignty. We might live in light of the gospel, run to your grace, and love your desires. Give us such a heart. Give such a greater grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.